It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. At roughly 1pm, on Sunday the 17th of September 1972, a chambermaid found the body of 68-year-old Emmy Werner behind the locked door of room 11 at the Queen's Hotel. Having been subjected to six years under Nazi occupation, three years in a concentration camp, a decade in psychiatric care owing to the traumas she had suffered, and half a lifetime of mental illness, This little dot of a lady had endured so much, and yet she deserved to find peace in her declining years. In a break from the nursing home she disliked, on a quiet side street in Bayswater, she found a small sliver of sanctuary by staying at a cheap little guesthouse called the Queen's Hotel. The rooms were clean, the staff were nice, and she felt safe amongst the people she saw as friends. The evidence you are about to hear has never been released. Many witness descriptions may include perspective rather than fact. And to protect the innocent, the names have been abbreviated. My name is Michael, I am your tour guide, and this is Murder Mile. Episode 178, The Night Porter, Part 3. The police knew there were several undeniable truths about the man who had murdered Emmy Werner. Having entered her locked bedroom without breaking in, he had prior knowledge of the fault with the balcony door, the acute deafness of his victim, and the large sums of cash in her purse. He was not a professional burglar, as he carried no tools of his trade, but a cocky amateur who had crept into hotel rooms many times before to steal as his victims slept soundly in their beds. Only this time, the occupant had awoken. (laughs) 
it was never believed that his intention was murder. But having been startled awake, seeing his face, and possibly knowing his name, in a fit of panic, he had beaten, strangled, and suffocated her. Fleeing with very little, if anything, his selfishness had resulted in a slow and painful death of an elderly lady. As in all investigations, the police questioned the staff, in particular, the night porter. Paddy had been the night porter at the Queen's Hotel for ten weeks. Hailing from Ireland, he had taken over from the previous night porter who was dismissed, although we shall never know why. On the night of Saturday the 16th of September 1972, Paul, the 16-year-old day porter, would recall Paddy was drunk when he arrived. I said to him, you're a bit pissed. He said, I'm a lot pissed. I told him he was too fucking pissed to take over, but he said he couldn't go to his bed because they, his cousins Barry and Maureen, who were not paying guests, were having a jump around. Unable to stay in room 45, as they were shagging. Being at a loose end, a sozzled paddy came to reception and continued to drink. Police investigated his movements that night, but being unable to find anything to connect him to the evidence obtained at the crime scene, Paddy was ruled out. The police still believed that the night porter was her killer. Only that night, Paddy was not the night porter. The night porter was Paul. Born in the mid-50s in Middlesbrough, an industrial town on the northeast coast of England, his father was a hard-working docker in the local shipyards, as his disabled mother raised him at home. Age three, tragedy struck. When on the day after his brother's birth, his mother died of heart failure. With this small family in chaos, as the linchpin of their unit was gone, Paul and his three siblings were adopted by their grandmother, who raised them as their own in her pre-war terraced council house. Seen as elderly in his eyes, she gave him the love and stability this young boy needed. And by everyone who knew him, he was intelligent, alert and articulate but he wasn't disturbed by the trauma of his past. That year, his father remarried. And although Paul spoke fondly of his grandmother and affectionately of his father, his one later regret was that I never gave my stepmother a chance. 
This was not a wild and angry kid out for revenge. As even he would state, I felt inferior and I wanted to better myself. His life was going okay. He had gained a place at grammar school and his future looked promising. But in 1969, when he was just 14 years old, his grandmother died. She was his everything. Paul would later state, I never had a family, just replacements of a family. And all of my life, I've been getting over it. Still being only a kid, he moved back in with his father and stepmother, but the atmosphere was tense. He lived briefly with his uncle, but being arrested in May 1971 for burglary and theft, escaping with just a £5 fine, he personally asked social services to put him in a youth hostel. As a young lad, on the streets, with a criminal conviction who had begun experimenting with drugs, his life could have hit the skids. Only he wasn't seeking self-destruction or revenge. What he wanted was excitement. On the 10th of January 1972, Paul got a job as a porter and handyman at the Queen's Hotel. The hours were easy, the pay was okay, and with food and board already included, the rest he spent on fun. In his spare time, he joined a band playing guitar and harmonica. He got gigs as a roadie with his dream to tour with the Rolling Stones. He hitchhiked across the UK from June to July. And in August 1972, he returned to the hotel. Like many at the hotel, he was a typical young lad looking for new experiences. He liked music, fashion, drink and sex. And amongst this like-minded group of kids in an adult's world, he had found a new family. By August 1972, when Paul had returned from hiking and was back at the hotel earning a few quid for his next adventure, Emmy had already become a well-liked regular. As a friend of Linda, Paul joined them both for meals. He collected her post and they chatted in the hotel lounge most evenings over a light bedtime snack of cheese, crackers and a cup of tea. But was this a new friendship which was blossoming? Or as the police would suspect, a burglar choosing his next victim? On the night of the murder, with Paddy apparently too pissed to do his duty as the night porter, Paul called Osmond, who was sick in bed, and asked, Can I take Paddy's shift? And yet, Paddy remained at reception during the night. Paul already had plans to meet his pals, and Paul himself was sick with a cold, 
sneezing and blowing his nose into fistfuls of toilet tissue. On previous visits, as an elderly lady who struggled to climb the stairs unaided, Emmy had regularly stayed in room 17, next door to Osmond. But being almost full that weekend, she was placed in room 11, a room in which the balcony doors could not lock unless Paul held it shut with a 5P piece. And as the hotel's handyman, to fix it was either a job Paul was scheduled to repair or deliberately didn't. When questioned, Paul admitted that he and other members of staff would enter the hotel rooms via the French windows on the balcony, stating, A lot of times, guests get locked out and I had to climb up to let them in. When detectives asked, Have you had to do this for room 11? Paul replied, Nearly every room. I know you're thinking about fingerprints, but mine are all over the place. As a dysfunctional hotel, run by disinterested kids earning a pittance, and a manager with other things on his mind, their complacency had clearly rubbed off on each other. For Emmy, she saw this cheap little hotel as a safe haven and the staff as her friends. But what she didn't witness was its darker side. A side which may have got her killed. Among some of the staff, the Queen's Hotel had a bad attitude which was encouraged. With this being more of a job than a career, many bunked off work, turned up drunk and let their mates stay over for free. Ziggy and Garnet, two German pals of Paul's, admitted, We were sitting in the TV room. The phone rang once, then it stopped. That was the prearranged signal from Paul that the manager was coming. We ran out and waited till Paul said it was safe. Being sick in his bed, Osman stated that he had never left his room all night which means that between 11.30pm and 2am, Paul was mostly alone. That said, many of the staff engaged in little sidelines, which were not only wrong, but illegal. According to Rosemary, the chambermaid who Cathy replaced, after a few days, everyone was sitting at the table and openly talking about what they were doing at the hotel as a fiddle. It was said that the scams began at the top. Osman, the manager, always had things in his room, like teddy bears, watches, cameras, jewellery, everything. It was like an Aladdin's cave of stolen goods. Staff routinely stole from guest suitcases, which is how they knew that Mr. James owned a bondage whip. And as is a habit in some hotels when guests were rude, 
their toothbrushes were inserted anally. This hotel did a roaring trade in illicit drugs. Whatever you wanted, they could get. Cannabis, speed, and LSD. Partially brought through Tappy, a mate of Osmond who claimed that he was a roadie. Which was one of the reasons why the police had so few witnesses to the murder. As some of the staff were either drunk or high. Another possible reason was that the hotel sold sex. According to Amy, Paul slept with the prostitutes as well as Linda and Patricia. And as stated by Rosemary, Osmond had Cindy the chambermaid sacked because she had been one of his prostitutes for the guests and he had refused to give her a bigger cut. But the main scam amongst the staff were the thefts. Several staff attested that Paul, the 16-year-old with a conviction for burglary, often bragged about his unblemished record when it came to theft. He boasted about getting into guest rooms and stealing things while they were asleep. Asked why they never saw him, he said he was too clever. To assure the guest's personal possessions were safe, according to Gunhilda, the housekeeper, there should only have been three master keys which opened every door. One for the manager, one for myself, and one kept at reception. But everybody had a master key. Besides, Paul knew how to creep about undetected. When asked why no one heard him stealing from rooms, he said it was because of his plimsolls. He used to sneak up, so quiet, and put his hands on your shoulders. He was really creepy. I asked him if he had any close calls, and he said never. But like everyone who is young, cocky, and inexperienced, Sometimes, luck can bite you back. According to Rosemary, he got a kick out of it. I saw him with cameras, jewellery, etc. He always had rolls of money and spent a lot. Paul told me he knew which guests had money and which would wake up. He said he mostly went into the rooms of women because they left their jewellery out at night. And to ensure they wouldn't wake up as he crept about, he would pick the easiest of targets. Like frail old ladies who were deaf and suffered with dementia. But it was the sadism inflicted on Emmy which led the police to their prime suspect. If a burglar had been disturbed, he was most likely to flee or to batter his victim into silence. 
whereas Emmy was gagged, suffocated, and strangled in a slow, painful torture which would have taken minutes to die. Mawan, a former receptionist, said, He was obsessed. He talked all the time of how he would strangle people. He told me one day about how he strangled one of the chambermaids with her own hair. Diana, also a former receptionist at the Queen's Hotel, told the police of an incident which occurred just three days before Emmy was murdered. I went to my bed in room 43 at about 1am. I woke up when Paul came into my room. The door lock didn't work. He sat on the bed, lit a cigarette, and he said that he felt like doing something naughty. He took the bootlaces from his boots. He tied my wrists and ankles. And he placed a towel over my head in the form of a hood. It almost smothered me. I couldn't remove it because my hands were tied. And he was sitting astride me. A method of strangulation. Not too dissimilar to how Emmy would die. Paul was never charged with any of these offences. Which begs the question, was any of it true? On Thursday the 14th of September 1972, at roughly 10.30pm, Emmy entered the Queen's Hotel. She was dressed in a brown cardigan later used to bind her wrists, and a woolly mohair scarf, later used to gag her screams and to shut off her breath. In her hand, she carried a bag filled with items of little value to anyone but her. Some clothes, some tissues, a box of TUC crackers, and a bottle of jasmine perfume. The Queen's Hotel was where Emmy felt safe, amongst a staff of kids who she saw as friends. Greeted by Angela, the receptionist, Paul, the young day porter, telephoned Linda in her room to tell her Mrs. W's here, as Emmy had promised to take her to the theatre. And although blighted by a cold and blowing his nose into fistfuls of toilet tissue, Paul assisted Emmy and her bag to room 11. Emmy was light. But it's possible she had already been marked as an easy target. Osmond openly admitted that he didn't like her. She was a little bit senile and I thought she was rather pathetic. I got the impression that she had money. Emmy was not wealthy, but like many pensioners with money worries, she trusted notes over banks. Back in August, Amy, a former chambermaid, recalled, 
An old woman was staying in room 17. She had a German accent. She had a lot of money, but she looked very poor. While she was showing me some photographs, she took a purse out, which had loads of money in it. Afterwards, Paul remarked, I wouldn't mind a piece of that. One time, I found her purse whilst cleaning the TV room. I handed it back to her, and Paul said I was stupid. He asked, did she have a lot? I said, it was full. I couldn't close it. The next day, as Emmy came down to breakfast, the staff remarked that she didn't look well. She said she hadn't slept a wink all night, as she thought someone was trying to get into her room. That night, she slept in all of her clothes, and she put a table against the door. As a confused old lady, who was prone to losing things, although she thought she'd had some money stolen, this was dismissed as senility. In her eyes, why would the staff steal from her? They were her friends. But were they? Amy would also state, Paul was always taking the mickey. And as a vulnerable old lady, whose traumatic life and mental illness often caused her to repeat what others had said, he mocked her saying she spoke like a parrot. But most of all, he always watched her, especially when she opened her purse. That night, as Emmy checked into the Queen's Hotel, she wasn't placed in her usual room, room 17, but room 11, a small first-floor bedroom with a balcony and a set of French doors, which didn't lock. At 9pm, on Saturday the 17th of September, Emmy and Linda returned from the theatre. They chatted in the lounge with Paul and Patricia, and at 11.05pm, Linda escorted her to room 11, and then she went to bed. By that point... Most of the guests and staff were asleep. Paddy was drunk. Ziggy and Garnet were waiting Paul's call. Barry and Maureen were shagging. And there would be next to no witnesses to Paul's alibi or to the murder. As that night, in his basement bedroom, Patricia, Ziggy, Garnet and Paul would each drop a tab of acid. A hallucinogenic drug known as LSD. With no eyewitnesses, the police could only go on the evidence they found at the crime scene. By his own history, 16-year-old Paul had one conviction for burglary. He was frequently seen with stolen goods, and he boasted of creeping into guests' bedrooms as they slept to steal their belongings.
As a porter, he had access to master keys. As a handyman, it was his job to undertake the repairs. And as staff, he knew Emmy was in a room with a broken lock on a night that the hotel was unbearably hot. That night, the man who entered Emmy's room as she slept got away with very little, if anything. Possibly a few pounds. But missing was a bottle of jasmine perfume, similar to one later found in Paul's room. The day after a murder, the police doctor examined Paul and found several bruises each of them no more than a day or two old, and all of them upon his arms, wrists and fists, which he could not explain. But as we know, during the attack, Emmy fought back. Upon the floor, a cigarette's filter tip was retrieved and examined. The brand was John Player Special, the type Paul smoked, and the saliva was from a Group A HP21 Secreta, the same as Paul. But none of this was cold hard fact, as every piece of evidence so far had a logic and a reason. Paul would admit that his fingerprints would be found in the room, but they weren't. Not a single print of his was, so either they had been wiped away or as a porter who wore gloves, he left none. With only one entry point, the police knew Emmy's killer had walked particles of black bitumen, used to waterproof the balcony, across the carpet, to the bed, to the wardrobe, and inside of the bedsheet as he had straddled her during her beating and strangulation. But retrieved a few days later, although he was on the balcony as the fire engines went past, no particles were found on his clothes or his shoes. When examined, none of Emmy's skin, blood, saliva or fibres were found on Paul. And as a boy with a cold, who repeatedly sniffled and sneezed that night. Although fistfuls of identical toilet tissue, which her killer had stuffed down Emmy's throat to suffocate her, was found in his room and in his pockets. It was a standard white toilet paper, kept in the hotel storeroom and used by every guest or staff in every room. For Emmy's murder, the police felt they had enough evidence to convict. Only they didn't. From the 5th to the 12th of February 1973, Paul was tried at the Old Bailey on the charges of robbery and murder. Standing before Mr Justice Evely, and defended by Mr. Mayhew, QC. He pleaded not guilty. Across the five-day trial, witnesses included family, friends, staff, 
pathologists, forensic scientists, a psychiatrist to determine Paul's state of mind, and medical experts as to the effects of LSD on memory. Throughout, Paul held firm of his innocence and said that if released, his father had agreed to take him back. And given his age, they asked that he be placed under a care order rather than sent to prison. But it was all academic. With no witnesses and no fingerprints, his movements vague and the time of death sketchy, with the cigarette tip not proven to be his, and the perfume not proven to be Emmy's. And more importantly, not a single person having seen him enter room 11. With the evidence determined to be purely circumstantial, on the 12th of February 1973, Paul the Day Porter was acquitted. Through the hardships of her life, Emmy had struggled and survived through unimaginable horror. Physically, she had survived the Holocaust. But mentally, she was scarred until the day she died. As an old vulnerable lady, she believed she had found sanctuary and friendship in a little guesthouse in Bayswater. But instead, she was to be preyed upon by the epitome of selfish evil for a few pounds that she didn't have. This year marks the 50th anniversary of the murder of Emmy Werner, and the case remains unsolved. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. And there you go, folks. That was part three, the final part of Oh, the, the Night Porter. Hope you liked it. Something different. 
always try and give you something different always try and always try and think where you think it's going and then i try and work out where it they should go and this is why i put episodes in different places and make it all different and interesting oh hope you enjoyed that anyway god it's hot today i'm just going to remove your shield shield off there you go you can hear me better now there we go get rid of me other filter this is a weird one today because uh, sorry welcome to extra mile i keep forgetting to this the unscripted unedited bit if you've never listened to extra mile before this is it uh, uh go into some extra details about the case we do a bit of a quiz you don't need to listen to this it's not uh, not essential you're welcome to switch off now not a problem normally i'd make a cup of tea but it's too effing hot heat wave 40 we've we've passed 40 degrees today it's the hottest day on record ever mm. Mm. i tell you what being inside a uh inside a steel uh a steel box core lummy like the outside gets hot by about 10 o'clock inside bakey hot I'm recording this just wearing a pair of pants. I would normally, normally I'd have the the doors shut, but if I, the second I close the doors, the temperature rises by 10 degrees and inside here it can get up to like 53, 54 degrees. So when I look online and everyone's going, oh, it's so hot, I've had the air conditioning on all day. I'm like, you mothers of pearl. It's like, I'm in here, no air conditioning. If I close any doors or windows, the temperature just rises. So I've... I've recorded this with the windows and doors open. Uh, I've had, I've got my little, my little uh, USB powered fan here that I've had to switch off for the recording. And now I'm going to switch it back on. It has been a lifesaver. You're going back on. There we go. Uh, yeah. Oh, nice. Nice. Oh, let's just, let's just plonk that there. So it, it'll waft over me genitalia. Um, so what else is going on in the world? I'm not going to make a cup of tea today because, as mentioned, it's too hot. It's too hot. I bought. I, I went. I went to the shops, bought a bag of ice, came back with it. It almost melted by the time I got it back. It's too hot. It's too hot. Uh, so yeah. So I'm just going to have some water. Um, uh, thank you to those of you who. Uh, See, I'm saying this and it hasn't happened yet. Thank you to everyone who, who turned up to the meet and greet with myself and Mike from Dark Poutine, which. Uh, is going to happen in four, three or four days' time as of recording, but by the time you listen to this, it will have already happened. It will be in past. Uh, so thank you for coming. If you did turn up, I hope you had a good time. I hope, I hope you did. If you didn't, sorry about that. Uh, I don't know because it hasn't happened yet, but there we go. Um, so that's all good. What else is going on? We've got our live show on the 11th of August in London. That's um, myself and Adam uh, and Paul from UK True Crime uh, Enthusiast. Uh, almost got those wrong then. Uh, come along to that. There's loads of people coming. Loads of. Uh, it's not just a chance to sit down and listen to us. It's kind of. You get to meet a lot of like-minded people. All the people in the group are, group are uh, people who kind of, you know, you've probably chatted to online or if you don't, you know, nice to just meet other people. There's lots of people actually turning up who aren't coming in twos. There's lots of ones turning up. So, you know, turn up, have a bit of a giggle, meet people, uh, meet, make some new friends. And afterwards, we've got a meet and greet. So you're, you're welcome to stay for that afterwards. So that should be good. <sighs> I'm just going to do a quick read. Um, and then we'll dive into some extra stuff, some quiz stuff. So, here we go. Uh, uh, deep breath. Friends, 
on Saturday the 10th of September 2022, coming soon, I shall be returning to CrimeCon, the UK's favourite true crime event, where I have the pleasure of appearing on Podcast Row alongside of the UK and some of the world's funkiest true crime podcasters. And when I say funky, I don't mean smelly. Uh, it's an intimate one-day event packed full of guest speakers, discussions, panels and it's a fantastic opportunity for you to meet like-minded people who share your passion. Uh, it's held at the Glasgow Hilton uh, on Saturday the 10th of September 2022, which is this year. Um, for me, it's a fantastic chance to meet listeners and to hang out with my podcast chums. Uh, that's why I enjoy doing and possibly uh, to get a massive stinking hangover courtesy of Bob from Twisted Britain. As yes, uh, it is always his fault although I'm partially to blame as well. Um, if you want to attend, it'll be a good fun. We'd love to see you there. And of course, you can save a little bit of cash. Uh, it's a one-day event. I think tickets are uh, I think tickets are £125, but you can save 10% uh, by simply using the offer code MILE. There you go. That's, a, that's the better offer code. Every other offer code is just shit. Ugh, what do you get for that? Nothing. Ugh, just crap. This one's better. Uh, so I look forward to seeing you there. Uh, if you want to attend, there's a little link in the show notes, unless I've forgotten, uh, which I could have done. Um, so let's do some quiz questions. Mmm, excitement. Um, don't forget, as always, I might ball some of these up. So question number one. Where did Paul say he went to get two cheeseburgers and a bag of chips for Paddy? Ooh, excitement. These are the big questions, aren't they? Question number two, uh, where in the north of England did Paul grow up? Question number three, what age was he when his mother died? Question four, uh, when was Paul convicted of burglary? Oh, sorry, when Paul was convicted of burglary, what was his punishment? Question five, what hobby did Paul do in his spare time? So not burglary uh what did he do in his spare time what hobby mentioned uh i'm gonna do some uh, uh questions from the older episodes now uh just means we can dive through some stuff for the extra mile uh question number six in what city was emmy born mm, can you remember back three episodes ago Ooh, burpees question seven what was the name question seven what was the name of emmy's daughter See, I'm hiccuping and I'm just drinking water. Uh, question number eight. What play did Emmy and Linda go to see? Question nine. What brand of crackers were in Emmy's room? And question number ten. Where in North London was Emmy's care home? There you go. Ooh. I thought I'd do this. I wasn't really wasn't going to record this today because it's too hot. But on the weather... Weather saying uh, there might be thunderstorms later and tomorrow morning. And I was like, oh, I don't want to be recording this during thunderstorms. So, uh, yeah, so I did it in the heat. Oh, I'm dying. Right, let's dive into some extra stuff to do with this case. What have we got? What have we got? Uh, Paddy, the night porter. He'd been employed for about 10 weeks. Um, the, Paddy and Paul didn't seem to like each other. There seemed to be a bit of a rivalry going on there. Uh, which could could have been one of the reasons why Paul seemed to be blaming Paddy at the start. He seemed to be bl uh, 
blaming him quite a lot uh when paul came down uh, paddy came down he was uh very drunk as mentioned in the episode uh his timing seemed to be a bit vague um paul seems to say that he called up osmond to say that he was going to take over paddy's shift at about nine o'clock but then later on he said that paddy arrived at about 1 a.m so the timings are all over the shop that night which makes for a really difficult episode which is why the police struggled to pin everything together because you've got staff who are pissed you've got staff who are on lsd uh you've got staff uh and probably some customers as well who are doing illegal activities getting up to stuff that they shouldn't do so no who really is telling the truth it's kind of hard to pin down uh which makes it very difficult and as we know paddy just kind of kept boozing through the night he this is what makes it weird is that Paul said he took over his shift, but when you look at the facts, Paul doesn't seem to be doing much night portraying that night. Paddy seems to be on reception, which is what you have a day receptionist, and when the day receptionist goes, the night porter takes over as the receptionist. Uh, so Paddy was on reception that night. He was fixed in that position. Paul was elsewhere, so Paul didn't seem to be doing uh, the night porter job that he asked Osmond to do. Uh, which again is kind of weird as well because they'd already made the decision uh pre 10:45 to go and drop some acid so uh, as mentioned in episode 2 i believe we had patricia on there and she said she had no plans that night uh she headed out to meet a mate in the pub i del- deliberately kept that vague uh and what she did was she went to a pub over the road to pick up some lsd which paul paid for so paul paid 4 pounds for that although we don't quite know where he got the money from could have been part of the five pound that he got off paddy uh for renting out the room and keeping quiet about that but we don't know there seems to be a lot of dodgy money changing hands so no one seems to know who or why is what going on but they had made the four of them including the german guys uh the german students had made a decision that they were going to drop acid that night and that was done pre 10 o'clock so before uh they were sitting down with emmy uh and linda having the um cheese and crackers what else is going on uh i won't do that because that gives away one of the questions um there was a whole hoo-ha in this about um where paddy got his money from at the start but the the same can be said about paul as well there seems to be a real vagary about where they get their money from there was an argument in there about how much money was in the float because obviously uh a lot of customers paid by cash there was a cash float uh paddy seemed to have 20 pounds and no one seemed to know where he got the money from paul said uh i think he had taken it by letting rooms he told pat what rooms he had let and he told her to change the sheets he gave five pounds between me and pat now obviously a lot of this we can't prove as well uh paddy's cousin uh maureen and her husband barry were questioned as well but they were upstairs shagging and they were drunk as well so they were absolutely useless um one of the big questions that night was why was the hotel so bloody hot everyone complained about it it was middle of september temperature was still good outside um why was the heating on why was it so hot why was everyone baking this is one of the questions that we have to ask um even like paddy when he came down he said it felt like felt hot and he had to take his jacket off because he was baking Uh, so did someone turn up the heating by accident was it deliberate was it a deliberate ploy to ensure that some of the windows were open although given the fact that in emmy's room the lock didn't work 
was that a reason? Uh, actually, when you look at the locks, um, it was the bolt lock that didn't seem to be working. Uh, sorry, the key lock that didn't seem to be working. But when the police looked at the top, top of the door and the bottom of the door, there were some sliding bolts and they worked perfectly. So why they weren't used, we don't know. Why Paul had to put a 5P piece in there to lock, bolt the door lock. Well, it didn't really bolt it, it just held it shut. Why he did that, we don't know. There's a lot of things in here that don't make sense. Uh, but as we know, Paddy was proven not to be the culprit. He had no bitumen on his clothing, as did Paul. Uh, his blood group was not the same as the cigarette, although they could never prove that it was the, the killer of Emmy who had smoked the cigarette. Um, there were fingerprints found in the room, uh, but none of them were Paddy's. Uh, what else was there? I think that's it on that one I'm not going to do too much about Paul's background there because we've kind of covered everything we needed to there he seemed by all accounts he seemed to be a relatively intelligent young lad he passed his 11 plus he initially went to grammar school but at his own request uh, he was moved to a secondary modern uh, because around this time uh, his grandmother had died and he didn't want to put a burden on his family I uh, um very much seems like a fragmented family in his early life but he doesn't seem to be one of these people who's kind of uh, oh god my my upbringing is so horrible i'm gonna take it out on everyone else he just seems to have accepted it and tried to do his best to kind of uh expand with life which is i think what is interesting about this case if although he was acquitted if you were to say that he was the murderer as uh the police suspected uh he doesn't seem like the type he doesn't see you know there doesn't seem to be a craziness there which is what i've tried to get across with this episode is this doesn't seem to be a murder of as we've seen before with people who are sadists and there's there's weirdos and they all have obsessions with this one this very much seems to be a burglar who was disturbed something triggered tried to shut emmy up maybe she was still screaming maybe he panicked Maybe that's where things went a little bit too far. Maybe there was a hint of sadism in there, as we have seen earlier on. But, as mentioned, he was for, he was uh, acquitted. Uh, uh, but he does seem to be a kind of a, a self-sufficient kind of young man. Like, as mentioned, you know, he couldn't live with his dad and his new stepmom. He couldn't live with his uncle. So he personally went to social services uh, and asked them to put him into a youth hostel. There was one found uh, in uh, the area where he grew up. He basically knocked on the door and said, I need help. Can you put me in a, uh, a youth hostel? And the guy who ran it said, you know, he was a good lad. He worked there. Uh, and they even said, if he was found guilty of this crime, i.e. the murder, um, rather than him being sent to prison, they'd already spoken to the guy who ran the youth hostel and said look he's a good lad deep down his his father said he can come back and live with him at home he can come and come back and live in the hostel and work here because we we kind of like him so um which i think makes makes this kind of a really interesting episode uh yeah, there's a, a very lengthy psychiatric report i've put elements of it into this episode uh where we get a lot of the details from there was no indications of disturbance in his early life no bedwetting no uh truancy no running away he was in good health uh he had no uh diseases no symptoms no ailments he'd had a head injury briefly like 18 months before which required hospitalization but that was literally one night in bed and there were no complications 
Um, uh, what else have we got? Let's go down a bit. Um, he seemed to be kind of, uh, you know, this is the early 70s. He's a young lad. Uh, they said he liked ultra modern clothes. So he likes fashion. Uh, he loves going out. Um, he admits that he felt more at home with prostitutes and doubtful characters of Bayswater. Bayswater is full of doubtful characters. He tried to be a hippie, but he said this wasn't for him. He was strongly heterosexual and is sexually experienced for his age. Uh, but although a little bit childish, it's only 16 years old, uh, everyone said that his character was pretty much excellent. Um, he admits that he'd been taking cannabis for several months and had recently been taking LSD. During the weekend of the 16th of September, so the murder weekend, uh, he had taken 10 tablets of adrenamil, which is a mixture of a stimulant and a barbiturate for most aids, so kind of keeping himself awake. Uh, but he said he didn't take that on the 16th. He says he took one tablet of LSD on the morning of the 17th at about 1am. The timings of when they took the LSD is really vague on this. Some of them seem to say it was pre-midnight. Others say it was about 2.10am. It's all, it's really vague. Uh, he says he spent uh, the night with his friends listening to music and enjoying the effects. Uh, the doctor thinks there was a possibility that the drugs had... Uh, he had taken for his cold may have p potentiated the drug effect causing him to have a bad trip now i was going to go into this in the episode because there's a real description of it but he goes downstairs into the basement with his friends they're all tripping he has a trip he starts to get really sick he starts vomiting um he says that between like 2 a.m and about 5 a.m he starts he's like feeling really terrible he's not in a good way 5 a.m he knows that he uh he needs to make breakfast because there's an Australian family who are, need to head back for their uh, flight and he has to make them breakfast. So he needs to get his, his shit together. So he's back on duty at that point. Uh, what else is there? Um, obviously, I, 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 there was a big section in here that I was going to put in. Um, I hinted at it before. Uh, him and his relationship with Emmy. Obviously... Linda and Emmy were friends and Paul was kind of a friend of Linda so he kind of came along um what I didn't put in there as well was that Osmond the manager uh was also a friend of Linda's Paul and Osmond both seem to have had sex with Linda and Patricia and some of the sex workers uh but they all go out uh on meals with Emmy uh so Osmond is there as well um, but it was only Linda and Paul who three or four times went to Emmy's care home and had meals with her there. And they said that, you know, uh, she seemed to like them turning up. She trusted them. She liked them. Hence, Emmy, it is said, asked Paul to go and pick up her en an envelope for her. Uh, her post from the house. She was spending more days at the hotel. She wanted him to go and pick up a registered envelope, envelope that arrived at the care home. We don't know what was in that envelope, but he turned up uh, with a letter that said, uh, written authority from Mrs. Werner, um, saying that the guy who ran the care home should give the, the uh, registered envelope to Paul to take back to Emmy, um, but Edgar, who ran the care home, said, no, I'm not going to do that. We don't know what was in the envelope. It was never mentioned. It's it's mentioned in the care, in the uh, police file, but it's it's not said what was in there. So we don't know whether it was important, whether it was family related. We don't know whether it's something to do with her bank account, which was the thing that she was most worried about. Uh, as mentioned in this episode, 
This happens a lot with kind of family who've got elderly relatives. The elderly relative is constantly worried about their money. And, uh, you know, they're always worried that they're being ripped off by someone, sometimes even family. Even though the family aren't, the family are trying to protect them. We've all kind of been through that. Uh, What else is there? Let's just jump through what we've got i've already mentioned about the doors which could have been bolted the movement of the room we quite don't quite know why she was moved rooms uh she was normally in room 17 which was right next to osmond why she was placed there we don't know maybe he liked to keep an eye on her uh maybe it was because it was of its position easy for her to get to uh but that night she was moved from 17 to 11 um uh, sorry, the, uh, on the Thursday before she turned up. So maybe 11 was already sold out. We uh, Sorry, maybe 17 was already sold out. We don't know. Uh, what else is there? As mentioned, you know, he he freely admit to climbing the balconies. Uh, sometimes climbing the drain pipe if he had to. He had access to the master keys, but as did many members of staff. Many members of staff also climbed the balconies as well. Um, the... Uh, the attitude of the staff is absolutely bizarre there's no it, there's no organization that's it's in utter chaos basically the kids run riot we don't osmond is the manager but he clearly isn't the person who owns the hotel he just doesn't give a shit just uh, he's just given up he seems to be uh, a little bit too obsessed with his little scams of making money here and there like he's a, a little wheeler dealer but they're all at it hence people are staying there for free hence the little code that's going on um Apparently, the the two German brothers, uh, Ziggy and Garnet, uh, were working as dishwashers in a Greek restaurant around just around the corner in Queensway. Uh, so they were living there rent free uh, in one of the rooms, possibly Paul's room, but we don't know. And hence the code was there. They could sit in the TV room having a bit of a gig or watching TV. When you heard the phone ring once and then it stopped, they knew it was a signal to get out because the hotel manager was coming down. Which I find interesting because there there seems to be so many scams going on. Why would the hotel manager be worried about some lads who are crashing over? That seems to be the least of his worries, really. Given the fact that there's a prostitution ring, there's a drug ring going on there, there's people breaking into rooms of people who are fast asleep. It doesn't make sense that Osmond would be upset about that. Uh, especially as in his room as mentioned he's got teddy bears watches cameras lots of stolen items jewelry uh, a veritable aladdin's cave uh but of course as mentioned in this i try to be really careful in this episode because a lot there's no uh records in there from the police saying these uh, osmond was found guilty of these thefts and paul was found guilty of this or they were charged with running a brothel or 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 soliciting for sex and things like that you know none of that is there so even though the chambermaids and some of the receptionists and the people who worked there and the housekeeper had said this is what's going on we don't have proof of it which is what which is why i've been deliberately cautious with with this episode I've deliberately tried not to use people's real names where possible. Uh, if they use, if they have kind of nicknames, I've used their nicknames. I haven't given you surnames. I haven't. I've rarely given you ages except Pauls and Emmys, uh, which is fine. That was printed in the newspapers, so that's acceptable. Uh, I haven't told you where people pretty much come from, except things that were printed in the paper. So I had to be really careful about this because. The last thing you want is uh, someone to potentially be arrested for a crime uh, all these years later.
especially as I don't know whether they were charged with any crimes. But they, yeah, there's a, a real scam in that hotel. Uh, what else is going on? Let's have a look. Let's have a look, Michael. Um, um, the police sat down. So uh, DCI Candlish sat down with Paul when he was... Um, being interviewed at Paddington Police Station. And Paul started to sob. He said, um, what are you trying to do to me? I didn't kill her. DCI Candlish said, uh, you could have gained access across the balcony through the housekeeper's room by using the pass key, intended to steal from her while she was asleep. And then when she woke, woke when she awoke, uh, jumped on her and tied her up so you could uh, so she could not give no alarm. I don't think whoever was responsible intended to kill her. Otherwise, there would be no point in tying her up. Paul said, you are saying I did it. DCI Candlish said, I am saying you could have done it. On your own commission, you were under the influence of drugs that night. Paul said, if I did it, I do not remember doing it. DCI Candlish said, if you did do it, I think you would remember something about it. Which Paul said, then I did not do it. Fortunately, this is how it would go all night. It was one of those um, uh, weird things. Adisa Candlish said, what is it like being on one of those trips? As in the acid trips, the LSD. Paul said, good. Candlish said, then why uh, did you feel so bad that night? I understand you were feeling good. And then suddenly your condition deteriorated. Uh, has this happened before? Uh, Paul said, this is the first time I've been sick. It must have been a bad tab. Must have been. Or maybe he was feeling bad for some reason afterwards. Um, as we know, there was a sign of uh, sadomasochism that we mentioned in there. His kind of uh, mini relationship with Diana, who he had tied up, uh, which has similarities um, to the method of which Emmy was tied up uh, obviously this is perspective i mentioned this at the start this is in the kind of the little legal note i put at the start where i said in this is personal perspective which may may be in place of fact we don't have legal fact that he attempted to strangle people so uh obviously we've got to be quite cautious around that um it's a weird one there's a whole a whole thing in there about them taking drugs which i mentioned I, I i won't go into but um they all seem to be taking drugs at different times they all seem to be getting the effect at different times paul seems to go bad um obviously at this point paddy is still on reception and he's pretty much drunk he's still drinking brandy which he got from the room uh because uh barry and maureen were still shagging shagging way remember the days of shagging ah oh, great days uh what did he say uh paul said uh ziggy had taken some of it but it wasn't working my trip was starting i began to feel sick pat and garnet were already tripping because they had taken theirs earlier when i was working they were sitting looking at a wall god this sounds exciting paul lay down by the bed uh the sickness was getting worse and i complained to pat who covered me with blankets for about half an hour the sickness got worse and worse i began to feel like i wanted to vomit Pat told me to be sick in the rubbish box at the end of my bed. Exciting. Garnet told me uh, to get a bucket and Pat left uh, to get a bucket from Paddy, but came back and said that Paddy would want to know about the bucket. Uh, I told... See, I mean, it's, it's baffling what people are worried about here and yet what they're up to. I told him I would go to the toilet and I was sick there. I laid down on the bed feeling really sick 
Uh, Pat covered him in blankets. He was sick again. The other trips were weighing him off. Uh, Ziggy was still tripping and suggested we went out for a walk. Anyway, they asked me if I was going, but I told them I felt too ill. So they put on an LP for me and went out. This was between four and half past. He was left alone. Uh, they were gone for about 10 minutes. He said, I started to feel better about 5.30 a.m. Pat left uh, and said she was getting uh, ready to do the Australian's breakfast. I said I would help her. Uh, I went upstairs with Pat and there was a taxi driver sat in reception asleep. He was there to pick up the Australians and to take them to the airport for £3. I phoned up the Australians to make sure Paddy had woken them up. Patty and I ate in reception and Paddy called me over to work his money out for him. He had a £5 float and a £20 note. Uh, what else is that? I think that is it. I think that is it. I think pretty, that was pretty much the only bit that we didn't cover in the episode. And pretty much everything else is pretty much all there. Um, as mentioned, uh, Paul said that the reasons why uh, his fingerprints would have been on the balcony was the uh, when him and Emmy went out. When he first went on Thursday, the 14th of September at 10.29 p.m., uh, when they went out on the balcony to see the fire brigade going past and up the street, which we heard in the start of episode two. Um, this was around the point that he was putting the 5P in the balcony door to kind of close it. Now, he said that his fingerprints would have been on the scene at that point, but they were never found. This is kind of weird in the evidence because at some points they say the fingerprint was found and it was Paul's. And at other points they say no fingerprint prints were found, which matched his. So there's a real discrepancy there. Um, police made inquiries uh, into this and they said that a malicious call was made by an unknown person on Thursday the 14th of September at 10.29pm. They dispatched a fire engine from Harrow Road, which is just up the road, to 42 Inverness Terrace, which is just up, but there was no fire at 42 Inverness Terrace. So we don't know why the fire engines were there. Uh, I think that's it. I think that's it. Everything else is pretty much covered. Let me... Oh, let me just do the final bits we won't do the trial because we already did all of that in the episode but uh this as mentioned is still an ongoing investigation there's as mentioned a twenty pound reward for any information on the murder the met police's special casework investigation team are taking a fresh look at the case with this with the support from the family um they know that many years have passed since emmy's death but they're really keen to find anyone um who have any information about what happened that night um uh maybe someone who was scared to speak to the officers at the time now feel that they're able to come forward did you stay or work at the hotel or in the area of inverness terrace in the early 70s has anyone told you anything in confidence that you feel you should now disclose to the police we would be interested in speaking to those friends one of the hotel i.e. which would be Linda, uh, and an Italian woman who Emmy went to the theatre with uh, that night in case they have any useful information. We would ask anyone who would help please contact us in, us in confidence. Now, hopefully those involved in this episode, I'm sure that around that time, you know, they were kind of fearful of repercussions or their jobs or things like that, but 50 years have passed now, and in this episode, you know, I haven't used people's original names... Uh, I've used their nicknames where possible. I haven't used any details. So if they're listening to this, 
come forward, call the police. There may be things that you think are unimportant, which actually, for the police, may be really important. Who knows? Maybe there were things in this episode that have kind of triggered a memory that you thought, do you know what? I should have mentioned that. Uh, Emmy's granddaughter, Carolyn, uh, described her granddaughter as a vulnerable woman. Uh, No one should have to die like this, especially after the trauma she had already endured. Um, the effect on her close family continues to be a source of great sadness to us and we feel whoever uh, killed her should be held on account um so that is uh it's still an open case they're still looking at it uh but as mentioned it's unsolved um I forgot to do my uh, patron. Uh, a big thank you to patron subscribers. Thank you so much for this. I put it in the wrong bit of my kind of notes, so it's all the way down here. Um, a big thank you to patron supporters this week. So thank you very much uh, to Petra Horesky. I hope I got that correct. I hope that I couldn't even say the word right. So I hope I got your name right. I couldn't even say the word right right. Uh, and Janine Cordill. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you, everyone. Uh, also, uh, a thank you uh, for a donation. Thank you for a donation from an uh, an infamous friend from Texas. Thank you very much. That's super kind of you. Super kind. Sounds like a helicopter coming over. Mm, glad of. Uh, or, or maybe it's a boat. We will find out in a bit. We will find out. So let's do let's do answers to the quiz questions, which is good timing because my throat is red raw. Although I've just remembered, I've got some uh, Jamaican um, ginger beer in my ice bag and a root beer love root beer silly it, t- it tastes like dentist water but i don't know it's something about it that i like right let's do the quiz questions let's see how many of them i balls up question number one sounds like a boat uh, question number one where did paul say he went to get two cheeseburgers and a bag of chips for paddy it was at wimpy on queensway Ooh, wimpy they they used to do a uh, nice little uh it was that engine is too noisy get it sorted mate your engine makes that shitty noise you've got a real problem um listen to that what a mess horrible noise get it sorted uh, there used to be a wimpy near me when I grew up as a kid and they used to do uh, I think it was called a brown derby like a big chocolate donut with some ice cream on top and some chocolate sprinkles and some sauce on top delicious <sighs> haven't been to a wimpy in years but apparently I know people who went there recently and they said to do really good burgers question number two where in the north of England did Paul grow up oh another boat and this one is gunning absolutely gunning it not a care in the not a care in the world the fact that water levels are incredibly low um and uh the pound up there you've got to go up a lock next to me and i went past it the other day and it was about two feet lower than it should be there's barely any water in it so i have no idea how these two boats are going to go through clearly they haven't checked uh question number two where in the north of england see it's it's hot i'm getting all grumpy I'm getting all grumpy and Eva doesn't let me off chores when I'm when I'm hot and grumpy she just makes me work harder uh, question number two where in the north of England did Paul grow up it was Middlesbrough question number three what age was Paul when his mother died he was three question number four when Paul was convicted of burglary uh, what was his punishment 
it was a £5 fine, which is effectively £50 today-ish. Uh, question five. What hobby did Paul do in his spare time? Uh, he was in a band. He played guitar and harmonica. Uh, got some other questions here from older episodes, as mentioned. Uh, in what city was Emmy born? She was born in uh, Bruno in Czechoslovakia. Question seven. What was the name of Emmy's daughter? It was Hedy. Question eight. What play did Emmy and Linda go to see? It was Move Over Mrs. Markham. Question nine. What brand of crackers were in Emmy's room? Uh, they were TUC crackers. Or some people call them Tuck. Uh, and I got why well, I call them TUC because they're in capital letters. So there you go. Uh, and question number 10. Uh, where in London was Emmy's care home? Ooh, a little bit of a crash there. Mm. Uh, it was in Finchley. There we go. So I think that's done. That was a, a long extra mile. Sorry about that. So um, hope you enjoyed that. Have yourself a good week, folks. Stay safe. Stay cool. Uh, the heat wave has passed, but you never know. It'll probably come back because it's a bastard. Uh, thank you for listening to Murder Mile and supporting the show. We'll be back next week uh, with a single episode. Uh, have a good one. Stay safe and be good. Lots of love. Bye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.